uh, at various times in all of our lives, we, we are encountered by claims of authority. When these claims arise, there's always questions as to how we're going to respond to those claims of authority. Are we going to recognize that authority and submit to that authority, or are we going to reject that authority? Submission or rebellion? The book of Luke is a book that I believe seeks to demonstrate several important aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, particularly as they relate to his authority. It establishes Christ's authority, and then it also gives us many, many different opportunities to see how men and women responded to his authority. What are the implications of his authority? Well, those that submitted to his authority would receive power. They would receive authority of their own. But it also came at a cost. And Luke spends time telling us the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke is one of the three Gospels that we call the synoptic Gospels. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, the synoptic Gospels. But by this we mean that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while unique in many ways in their accounting of Jesus Christ's life and ministry... Uh, throughout the vast majority, however, re reflect the, the same content. That in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the same content, sometimes given from a different perspective, sometimes given in a little bit of a different order, but very similar content. Now, I tell you this because these similarities and differences have caused many theories to arise concerning the authorship of these Gospels, the sources that they used. If you ever do any research on the synoptic gospels, you're going to come across a thing that's called the synoptic problem. And these scholars have determined that the book of Mark is probably the earliest gospel. We talked about this a little bit on Tuesday night. And they determined that because it's the shortest. And scholars say if it's shorter, it must be better. It must be more authentic. Uh, 93% of the content in the book of Mark is repeated in the, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. There's some content which, found, which is found in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, about 7%. Uh, there's some content that's exclusive to Matthew. There's some content that's exclusive to Mark. Now, as I'm saying all of this, and, and it's, it's more or less academic at this point, you might be saying, well, what about John? What about the Gospel of John, Pastor? The Gospel of John is extremely unique. Uh, we don't even add it to the synoptics. Uh, sometimes you might see it if there's a, if, if you read one of the, the Gospels or one of the books that places all of the Gospels together, a harmony of the Gospels, you'll see John put in there. But John was very unique, very unique in purpose and very unique in authorship as far as what was written down. All of these links have been created. I would encourage you, if you ever do any study on the Gospels and you read about the synoptic problem, to not give it as much thought as scholars tend to give it. There tends to be easier explanations for why we find material in one gospel and not another than just historical explanation, why we find the appearance of discrepancies between the timings of the gospels and in minor ways the content. And on these conflicts, I give you two thoughts. First, when we approach the gospels, we must understand that they were written to distinct audiences. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And written for distinct purposes. Like any good document, the writer maintains focus on their purpose. And as such, 
we would expect that if the purpose for writing about Jesus' life is different, that there would be differences in how the record of Jesus' life is written. I'll clarify that in just a moment. Second, as we approach the Gospels, we need to remember this. We need to remember that they were written by men, but that they were authored by God. They were penned by men, but they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit chose to reflect the events differently or different events in the life of Jesus Christ to approach those from a different perspective for the benefit of the intended audience. So let's consider the four Gospels, their purpose just briefly, and particularly focus in on the synoptics as a way, by way of introduction. The book of Matthew was written by a man named Levi, or by a man, his, his name is Levi or Matthew, and he was a publican. He was Jewish, but one who had been seen by the Jews, at least in the time prior to Christ, as a vile person because he was a publican. A publican was a man who was hired on as a Jew to collect taxes for the Roman government. So he would have been seen kind of the same way that the IRS is seen today, only worse, because he wasn't just a man collecting taxes from his own people, but he was a man representing a foreign government collecting taxes from his own people. So he was seen not just as kind of the way a person would see an IRS agent today, but he was also seen as kind of a traitor who was working for the IRS. Uh, he would not be a well-received man in Jewish culture. He was perceived as a national sellout. He wrote from a, a, an entirely Jewish perspective, and he wrote to a Jewish audience for a distinct purpose, that purpose being to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus was their Messiah. So that was why Matthew wrote. Matthew wrote to the Jews and he said, I want you to know that Jesus is the Messiah, so that is how I'm going to write unto you. Because of this, you'll find some unique aspects to Matthew's gospel. First, you'll find references to the Old Testament everywhere. Old Testament prophecy and prophetic fulfillment. You will find far more prophetic reference and prophetic fulfillment in Matthew than you will in Luke, Mark, Luke, or John. And that is because Matthew was writing to an audience that would have known the prophets, would have known prophecy, and he's trying to connect the dots to the Jewish mind between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament reality. Furthermore, you'll find that Matthew didn't explain Jewish culture. In Mark and Luke and John, every once in a while, you'll find a, an explanation of something, a Jewish word, a Jewish tradition. You won't find that in Matthew because he's writing to a group of people that he assumes knows all that stuff. They know what the Passover is. They know what the Sabbath is. They know the significance because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew assumes the reading audience understands all of those dynamics, Jewish culture, Jewish traditions, and their significance. So he doesn't belabor the point on those issues because they know it already. Mark is, as we already mentioned, the smallest gospel. It has the least content. That makes sense, right? It was written by a man likely named John Mark, the same John Mark who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on what we call their first missionary journey. Barnabas was John Mark's uncle, according to Colossians chapter 4. And as they went on this missionary journey, we read about it in Acts 12, Mark ended up leaving the journey early, and he went home. We don't know why he left early, but when Paul and Barnabas got back from that journey and they were going on their second journey, Barnabas again wanted to take Mark and Paul would not have it. 
he would not allow Mark to go. And that leads us to believe that what, for whatever reason Mark left, it was probably not regarded, at least by Paul, as a valid reason. So he leaves, and Paul says the next time, no, he may not come with us. And the scriptures tell us that the contention was so sharp between Paul and Barnabas on this point that they split up. Paul took Silas and went on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas took John Mark, and they went to a different area to minister. That's the, the nature of the man who, who wrote this gospel. Uh, tr church tradition places Mark as a very close associate to the apostle Peter, and likely had been a convert of Peter's ministry. It's also likely that while, while Mark was not a follower of Jesus, it's likely that Mark was present toward the end of Jesus' ministry and was there for the trial. If you read the end of Mark, you see some language that seems to imply that the, the writer was there for that portion of the gospel. The strongest emphasis of Mark's gospel is on Jesus' actions. Whereas we might say that Matthew emphasizes Jesus' teachings, Mark definitely emphasizes Jesus' actions. There's action words everywhere. He writes in a very fast-paced style, giving, giving a, a, a much more succinct synopsis of what's going on in the Gospels. We might say that, that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to convince them of Jesus' Messiahship through his teachings and through prophetic fulfillment, whereas Mark was written from a Jewish perspective to assert Jesus' actions as Messiah. I'm going to skip over Luke for just a moment because that's our focus for the, the time that we're together today. Uh, but in the Gospel of John, just very briefly, John is very different. The scriptures tell us explicitly why John was written. In John 20, verse 31, John says, These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John wrote for one reason and one reason only, that you would believe that Jesus is Christ. It is, it is the evangelistic gospel. It's the one that explains salvation. It, it contrasts light and dark. It contrasts um, belief and unbelief, and that's the whole point. So everything and anything that John added to that gospel was, was added specifically for that purpose, to show the, the dynamic between whether you believe or whether you don't. You're with me or you're against me. And so that's why his is so different, because he wasn't interested in, in teaching all of the doctrinal dynamics that the other ones were, uh, the nitty-gritty of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, those sorts of things, the discipleship elements. He was teaching belief and unbelief. Now, Luke was written by a man named Luke, who, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, was a physician. He is the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just of the Gospel of Luke, but also of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So he wrote Luke and Acts. Luke is distinguished from the Jews in the book of Colossians, which makes us believe that he was likely a Gentile man, not a Jewish man. He was not a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was likely saved during Paul's first missionary journey. In Acts 16, if you read the book of Acts, you find that there's a, a change. Now, remember how I told you that there was a little bit of a change toward the end of Mark's book that make us feel like he was there for that point? It's the same thing in Acts 16. In Acts 16, Luke begins using the term we. We did this, we did that. And he hadn't used that term prior. So that leads us to believe that it was around that point that Luke began ministering with Paul. And in fact, we find Luke with Paul all the way until Paul's death. So Luke may very well have kind of joined on as, as Paul's personal physician. 
you know, to clean his wounds when he got stoned and, and uh, to help him out in whatever ways he could. And Luke was probably uh, there for, for at least in part that reason. Paul mentions Luke in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, as being with him at the time of that writing, which was right at the end of his ministry. So we see Luke throughout Paul's ministry from Acts 16 to his death. He was not only a physician, however, he was also a historian. And by his own testimony, his purpose in writing Luke, his desire, not his purpose, his desire was to write a historically accurate and chronological account. By that, we understand, and we'll see that as we get into the, the first chapter next week, that Luke is the gospel that is intending to set the chronology. Matthew and Mark, they kind of jump all over the place. They, they bring things together. They, they put things apart. Matthew and Mark are not written to be chronological. They're written to be topical. Luke is chronological. Luke is meant to be one thing after the next. So if you want the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry, the historical nature of it, go to the book of Luke. And that's what we'll be looking at over the next several months. He was writing to a man named Theophilus. We'll talk about that more next week. But what we know that he, he certainly wanted Theophilus to get a full understanding of Jesus' ministry from the beginning to the end. And that's how he wrote the gospel. There's no firm date set on the book per se. But we believe he probably wrote between 55 and 60 A.D., about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and somewhere 10 to 15 years before the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Let's dig into the text a little bit and we'll begin walking through it. There's, still, there's so much to cover. So uh, let's, let's uh, get moving on it. We begin our overview of the book with introductory material in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 52. I hesitate to call it introductory material because it's essential. It's foundational to everything. It's the introduction of John the Baptist and the introduction of Jesus Christ. And yet it's not his ministry yet. It's just his birth and certainly the announcement as well. And our text opens a full six months before Jesus is even conceived with the announcement of the herald of Messiah, John the Baptist. This is the only gospel where we receive this information about John the Baptist and his birth and how unique and special it was. So an angel appears to Zechariah, announces John's birth. Zechariah has some doubts. Um, the angel uh, satisfies those doubts with a sign that of the, the things that would surely come to pass. We'll talk about that next week. And the promises would be fulfilled. We then fast forward six months in Luke 1 to the announcement of Jesus' birth to a young virgin girl named Mary, a spouse to a man named Joseph. They had not yet been married. They were betrothed to be married at the time. Mary would then go to Elizabeth, who, who is, is uh, pregnant with John, and she would stay with her for six months. Chapter 1 would end with John being born according to the word of God and the rejoicing around his birth. As we transition into chapter 2, we fast forward another six months where in Luke 2 we receive the account of Jesus' birth and his childhood. A, 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 the most thorough account of Jesus' birth, to be sure. Uh, we, we learn that Joseph and Mary are both of the house of David, so they went to Bethlehem for their census. This sets up the answer or the, the um, prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' birth as being born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Uh, Jesus was delivered while they were there, born in very humble circumstances, born in very uneventful circumstances. Shepherds rejoice over, their, over the birth. We read of Jesus' first trip to the temple uh, at, 
uh, uh, 40 days or so after his birth, after Mary had been purified, we come across two people, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, each of whom testify of the reality of Jesus being Messiah. And chapter 2 closes with another trip to the temple, some 12 years later when Jesus is 12 years old. His first trip initiates um, the, the birth and, and, and the law, going through the process of the law. In this trip, he kind of tries to initiate his ministry for the first time. They go to the temple. They do their sacrifice. As everyone is leaving again, Mary and Joseph find out Jesus isn't there. He had stayed in the temple, and he was speaking to the doctors and to the scribes. And when Mary and Joseph came and they questioned him, he said, I must be about my father's work. They said, well, that's all well and good, but, but you're coming home with us. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ submitted himself to his parents, and he went home, and he lived under, under submission to them. Chapters 3 and 4 recount the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Taking place when he's about 30 years old, chapter 3 recounts the ministry of John the Baptist. So we are, we are some 18 years beyond where we left him in, in chapter 2, and now we see John the Baptist come on the scene. He's baptizing the repentant. He's rebuking the hypocrites. He calls the nation to place themselves in a spiritual posture to receive their Messiah. He baptizes Jesus, reflecting Jesus' alignment with John's message. That's very significant. I'm looking forward to talking about that in more depth when we get there. John is then thrown into prison, and he never reemerges. He is killed while he is in prison. So John's ministry ends, and it gives way to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a summary we find in chapter 3. John will come up again. He's still alive a little bit later in the book of Luke, but this is summarizing the fact that he would die. As, as we get to chapter 3. Uh, the final verses of chapter 3 give Jesus' genealogy and prove that, indeed, uh, as you look through the central names, it traces him through the lineage of David all the way back to Adam. And it shows that Jesus Christ is, in fact, human, that he is of the lineage of David, that he is, an, that he is a Jew, and all of those things are very important for us to understand. We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, this investment into humanity... Jesus' investment into humanity goes far beyond his genealogy, however. And we learn this in the first 13 verses of chapter 4. Here, Jesus is led of the Holy Ghost into the wilderness where he is tempted of Satan after 40 days of fasting and prayer. In these temptations, he identifies not just with the reality of our flesh, the fact that we get hungry, the fact that we become weak, but he also identifies with the reality of temptation so that Hebrews 4.15 can rightly say that Jesus Christ was tempted on all points like as we and yet without sin. So it is that having been announced by John and rejecting the very deepest of Satan's temptations, Jesus began his ministry as that anointed one of God, the Messiah, who is tempted and yet without sin, who is man and yet is God. Now, from Luke chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 19, the, this is the bulk of the teaching. This is the, where we receive the events of Jesus' ministry. And the primary focus of these events, as I've studied them, I believe, is revealing Jesus Christ's authority in every context of life and of spirituality. And then revealing the blessings and the cost of submitting oneself to Jesus' authority. 
Uh, the Greek word for authority is exousia. It's used 15 times in the book of Luke, more than any other book with the exception of one, and that being the revelation of Jesus Christ. Take note of the word, certainly, but even more of the concept. Even when the word is not used, we find the concept of Jesus' power and his authority all over this gospel. And as men and women come into contact with his authority, it is then our privilege to see how they react to it and how they interact with that authority. Jesus' ministry was very quickly distinguished from that of the scribes, from that of the Pharisees, from that of the rabbis, the other teachers in the land. The, his authority was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. However, it was recognized in uh, large portions of Israel. He went to Galilee, to the city of Capernaum, where he taught in the synagogues, he cast out demons, he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever simply by the authority of his spoken word. And as, he has as he's doing all of these things, we read in Luke 4.32, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And there's that word, that word authority. We'll see it translated power sometimes in our King James, sometimes authority. But the idea is that his words, what he said had power, it had power to heal but also his teaching. His teaching had authority. And it's interesting that in Luke, we see this idea his words had power connected with his miracles. In Matthew, we find this phrase right after the Sermon on the Mount. His teaching had authority as well. The important contrast here between other teaching and Jesus' teaching, other acts and Jesus' acts, must be recognized that Jesus had power and that the same power that was sufficient to rebuke a fever or to cast out a demon was also declaring truth. And the truth he was declaring was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's authority over that which was seen, be it the healing of the sick or the casting out of demons, was intended to assert that the hearers could trust him, should listen to him concerning his spiritual authority as well. If he had authority on earth to heal and to, to cast out demons and to control the winds and the waves, then you probably should listen to him when he talks about spiritual things as well. If Jesus' words had all of that authority in the physical realm, then certainly he had authority in the spiritual realm also. And that ends chapter 4, telling us that Jesus preached throughout the synagogues of Galilee, which is the northern re region of, of Israel. The demonstrations of Jesus' authority continue in chapter 5, but here we begin to see the authority not only touch other people, but, but also see how the, the people respond to his authority. And the first response is from Simon Peter. The crowds following Jesus are so great that, that Jesus asks Simon if he can stand in his boat and launch out just a little way to teach. He does so. At the end, Jesus says, launch out your boat into the deep and put out your nets. And Peter says, well, we've been fishing all night. We've ca caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. His word has authority, so we'll do it because you've told us to do it. So they go out there, they cast out their nets, and they have so many fish come into the net that not only are, are they having trouble, but another boat comes, the nets are breaking, and both boats are sinking because they have so many fish in the boats. And the response to, of Simon Peter to this is found in Luke 5, verse 8. 
Scriptures tell us when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you see what happened there? Peter saw Jesus' physical authority, his authority. And he said, if that is true, then everything else about Jesus must be true as well. His teaching must be true. He connected the dots and he said, if this is the Jesus, if this is who Jesus claims to be and this is what he can do, then he is Lord. And so he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. Verse 10 of that same passage, and so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, fear not, from henceforth Shalt, thou shalt catch men. I'm going to make you a fisher of men, he says. There's a new layer of Jesus' authority that comes toward the end of this chapter, though. Let's read it together in Luke 5, beginning in verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said unto this man, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said unto them, Why reason ye, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk, but that thou may know, ye may know, excuse me, that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. So we see here a situation. I didn't give you all of the context, but we see a situation where a man comes to be healed of Jesus and Jesus tells him, thy sins be forgiven thee. This new layer of authority whereby Jesus is not just asserting power over sickness. He's not just asserting power over the winds and the waves. He's not just asserting power over demons, but he is asserting the spiritual power to forgive sin. The power that is given only to one, and that is to God. By this, the Jews knew, and we need to understand as well, that Jesus was claiming to be divine. He is claiming the power to release a man from his offenses against God. And this is a big, big deal. So Jesus seeks to reason this out with them. He says, which is easier, to transform a, the physical anatomy of a man, to take a, take a man who can't walk and to make him walk, to take a man with a withered hand and make it whole, to take a man who can't see and make him see? Or to transform the spiritual anatomy of a man so that he's right with God where once he was wrong? He says, all you need to know is that I have authority. I have authority in heaven. I have authority on earth. I have the authority to forgive sins. In the remainder of the chapter... We read as Jesus calls Levi, Matthew, to follow him. He confronts the scribes and the Pharisees with, um, with his association with Matthew as a publican. And then he gives a parable. The parable of the wineskins, a well-known parable, where he indicates that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to shove him into their old way of thinking. And it's not going to work. His authority is something different. His authority is something more. We continue in chapter 6 to read about Jesus' authority as it extends to the Sabbath day. Disciples walk through the field. They pick corn on the Sabbath. There's a contention. And Jesus tells them, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath day. He says, I have authority over this day. Then on another Sabbath day, there's a man with a withered hand. Jesus says, is it wrong for me? He says in verse 9, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, to save a life and to destroy it? And then he heals the man with the withered hand. He says, I have authority over this day. 
So we begin to see this, these lines being drawn, the trend whereby the leaders in Israel are rejecting Jesus' authority, and so naturally they're rejecting not just his works, but they're rejecting his teaching. If they're, <coughs> excuse me, if they're not going to accept him healing on the Sabbath day, then they're certainly not going to accept his, his spiritual authority. If they, if they don't believe that he has the authority spiritually, then, then they're not going to believe that he has the authority physically. It's going to go both ways here. The, the tension is beginning to build between Jesus and the spiritual leaders of the day. But there were many that did not reject his authority. And of those that did not eject, reject his authority, there were particularly 12 that Jesus chose, whom he called his apostles. They're listed in chapter 6, along with several uh, elements of kingdom teaching directed exclusively toward his followers. The examples of his authority are continued to made, be made plain in chapter 7. First through a centurion who was a good friend of, Jesus, uh, of the Jews. Uh, his servant is sick. He comes to Jesus. But notice the interaction between this centurion and Jesus in chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come to thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I, am, for I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. So here's another layer, right? We've seen Jesus say, accept my authority. The, the Jewish leaders are saying no. Many of his followers are saying yes. But here comes a, a, a Gentile man, a Roman centurion, and he gets it. He gets it. He sends a servant to Jesus, and he says, I'd like you to heal my servant. Jesus says, I'll come. And the centurion servant says, no, 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 no. He doesn't want you to come. He gets authority. He's a man under authority. He understands how authority works. And that means your word is as good as your presence. And he knows this. So just say a word. Just say a word and he knows the servant will be healed. You don't have to come. Jesus marvels and he says, this man gets it. That whether my, I'm there in body or not, my words have authority. I could heal someone halfway across the world because I have authority. The centurion got it in a way the Jews didn't. So Jesus says, I found faith in this man that I've not found in Israel. Gets even better, though, as we continue in chapter 7. The next, th next place he goes, he visits Nain, where Jesus has compassion on a widow whose son has died, dead. They are carrying him in the... the the bear, it wasn't a coffin, it was effectively a stretcher type thing. And Jesus raises him from the dead. With most men, compassion is an extension of man's humanity. It can also be an extension of helplessness, but, but with Jesus Christ, it was an extension of grace. So he raises this young man from the dead and delivers him to his mother. Then come the reactions, right? Jesus has just raised the dead. Verses 17 through 28, 
reaction of John the Baptist. He's heard about Jesus' ministry, but he's skeptical because it's not quite what he expects. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison at this point. He can't see it. He can only hear about what's going on. Verses 29 through 35, further rejection by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verses 36 to 50, a contrast between the pious Pharisee named Simon and a prostitute named Mary. Jesus is at Simon's house, and yet Mary, this prostitute, is the one that comes and anoints him with oil. And Jesus says, this woman loves much because she's been forgiven much. Christ's authority toward the penitent, toward the repentant heart. In chapter 8, the responses continue. 1 through 21, Jesus teaches. 22 to 26, Jesus uh, exerts authority over the winds and the waves. 27 to 39, he exerts authority over demons. 40 to 56, he exerts authority over sickness and over death. In chapter 9, we see the blessings of authority begin to be conferred upon others. Jesus commissions his 12 to go and to preach. He calls them, as he says unto them, uh, the scriptures say in Luke 9, 1 and 2, he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he sends them with his authority. He, as, as God had given Jesus authority, Jesus now confers upon his disciples his authority to go out and to do these miracles in his name and to preach the kingdom of God. We also find in chapter 9, Jesus' first teaching in the gospel on the cost of discipleship. It was no doubt an alluring prospect, is it not, to follow a man with power. All power in heaven and earth, in fact. Even now, that's, there's an allure there, is there not? There's no shortage of people that are willing to follow power. And so there were in that day no shortage of crowds adoring Jesus. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to see people healed. They wanted that stuff. But for all the multitudes that followed Jesus, relatively few of them were actually disciples of Jesus. All the people there, they were in Jesus' fan sections. They liked Jesus for what he could do. They liked Jesus' power but while they liked the results of his power, they weren't interested in submitting themselves to his authority. Notice what Jesus said to his followers in John, uh, excuse me, Luke 9, 23 to 25. He said unto them, If any man will come after me, if, if any man will be my disciple, will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. For what is a man advantaged? if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away. Jesus said, there's a cost to following me. I, I ask something of you. I ask for your life. I ask for you to take up your cross. And this theme will pick up steam throughout the next 10 chapters. Jesus is transfigured before them. They see his glory. He calls upon his disciples to cast out a devil. They lack the faith to do so. A group of men don't receive Jesus, and James and John say, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven like Elijah? And Jesus says, you don't understand my ministry. You don't understand why I'm here, if you would think that, way, that we should do that. There were men that, that desired to follow Jesus, but prior commitments got in their way. Such is and has always been the case with Jesus, that there are many who recognize grace 
They recognize the possibility found in Jesus. They recognize the power. They feel like Jesus can do things for them. Ed, you and I come across this all the time in the jail, right? People that want Jesus to get them out of jail, want Jesus to do things for them, but they're not willing to place themselves under his authority. And this, this is the line that Jesus Christ is beginning to draw. That if you are going to become a disciple, you have to place yourself under my authority, Jesus says. Luke 10 reflects the same dynamics. Beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 22, finds Jesus commissioning 70 this time to go and to minister with power. They come back rejoicing, saying, even the devil's are subject unto us through thy name. And the end of the chapter finds Jesus teaching them what it means to defer one's notions, one's personal ambitions for the sake of obedience to Christ, to do it for him, not to do it for them. Don't seek the power. Just recognize that you have the power in Jesus' name to do things for Christ. Now within the transition taking place into the cost of discipleship comes more and more teaching on the nature of being a disciple. In chapter 10, chapter 11, 12, 13, uh, this is clear. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, Jesus, Jesus teaches on prayer. 14 through 26, he teaches on devotion. 27 to 36, he teaches on, a t on testimony and faith. 37 to 54, a declaration of woe upon those who reject the word of the Lord, who reject Jesus' authority. In chapters 12 and 13, Jesus warns against hypocrisy. The hypocrisy and the covetousness of those who uh, were in leadership in Israel and calls men to seek the kingdom of God to be ready for his return. And then as we finish the, the bulk of the teaching in chapters 4 through 19, chapters 13 through 19 finish by focusing in on Jesus' teaching of kingdom principles. And this is where we get a great number of parables. The nature of Christ's kingdom, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the man bidden to the feast, the parable of the wedding guests, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the, what we call the prodigal son, the parable of the faithful steward, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. All of these are parables within Jesus' teaching to his disciples about the economy of the kingdom the way the kingdom works. These parables, along with interspersed teaching, teach us specifically how to be disciples in this life and what to expect in the life to come. Chapter 17 to 19, Jesus exhorts his disciples unto faith, healing also the ten lepers, calling for uh, children to come unto him, interacting with Zacchaeus, who was the wee little man, right, as we sing. He gives parables of the persistent widow. He gives parables of the nobleman's vineyard. He gives parables of, of the publican and the Pharisee, of um, the Samaritan man, the good Samaritan. All of these parables in order to teach about the kingdom. Beginning in chapter 19, we see Jesus' final ascent into Jerusalem for his crucifixion. We have a great deal of information about the pre-crucifixion events in Luke. The final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And there's five or so chapters of details about this. In chapter 19, verse 45, he drives the money changers out of the temple. Then in chapters 19 through 21, he teaches in the temple. So we receive more teaching. This is teaching in this final week. 
In chapter 22, Jesus initiates his final hours on the earth with uh, the events surrounding Passover, the Jewish conspiracy, Satan entering into Judas Iscariot, night with his disciples in the Passover, his prayer on the mount, uh, mount in the Garden of Gethsemane, his false trial. Chapter 23, we, we read of Jesus' condemnation, his torture, his death, and his burial. And then in chapter four, 24, we read of Jesus' resurrection. He appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears unto his apostles. And then his ascension into heaven in Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. And that's the gospel. That's what we'll be looking at. I hope it became clear to you the emphasis on Jesus' authority. Now, every once in a while, there's no doubt we'll, we'll have a message come up where I'll emphasize that same concept of authority, but I'm not going to spend 24 chapters just preaching on authority, right? We're going to have plenty of other things inter, interspersed about the teachings of Jesus Christ. But as we do so, we need to keep in our minds this overarching theme that Jesus is showing his authority and he is calling men to recognize his authority with the promise of, of authority, conferred authority, but also the cost of that discipleship. Because Jesus Christ regularly emphasizes in Luke the cost of discipleship. Now in each series we do a book sermon. And we do these book sermons for several reasons. First, it gives you that overall perspective of the book. Second, it helps us establish broad themes and the purpose of the book. But third, it helps us understand how we can prepare ourselves to receive it. And this is typically what I do in the application to this message. I know it's been fairly um, academic to this point. Um, very much so just learning facts and learning about what the book is. But how should you, how can we prepare ourselves to receive this book properly. Point one that I give you this morning is this. Jesus Christ is God, King, Lord, and Savior. All throughout this book, we're going to be confronted with Jesus' authority, His teaching with authority, His authority over illness, over disease, over demons, over the winds, over the waves, over food, over drink. Yet all of these signs and wonders were done with one intent. That Jesus' works would prove in the hearts of those who saw it the authority of his words. So that when Jesus declared that he was the only way to the Father, we would believe it. When Jesus gave the conditions upon which a man can be right with God and subsequently live a life pleasing unto God, we would trust it. Regardless of how culture or family or even our own sensibilities would seek to convince us otherwise. There are times where in this life we are forced to act upon trust. Where we do what we do or we don't do what we do because somebody we trust to know better says we ought or ought not to. Maybe that's a doctor where you go to a doctor and you say, I don't know what's wrong. And the doctor says, I think I know what's wrong and this is what I think you should do about it. And we don't know if what the doctor's saying is right or wrong, but we trust the doctor some of us do, maybe not as much as we used to, but um, we trust the doctor, and so we do what the doctor tells us because we, we trust them that they have authority in their field and that they know better than us what is needed. Maybe it's a parent where, as children, you're 
trying to make decisions. Should I? Should I not? Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I take that step? Should I not? And you, you get advice from your parents or your parents tell you this is what you should do. And you do what they tell you because you trust them. We live in a world that's devoted countless resources to answering the questions that this gospel presents. Peace, contentment, stewardship, wisdom, questions on eternity. If a man came to this earth showing his authority over everything on earth, then claiming that he not only had authority over the things on this earth, but over the things which were spiritual, over the things which could not be seen, we would do well to trust it. These questions of peace and of contentment and of stewardship and of wisdom and of eternity have taken millions of man hours from people on this earth. They've devoted trillions of dollars, thousands of pages of the written word. Uh, some of the greatest minds who have ever lived have contemplated these concepts, how to bring peace, how to have contentment. There's entire fields of study about this, right? How to bring peace, how to have personal contentment, how to be content, how to have right relationships, wisdom, and how to be a good steward. And then we read the Gospel of Luke, and we find that 2,000 years ago, a man came on the scene, not an overly charismatic man. The Scriptures tell us that there was nothing in him that was inherently grand to look upon. Not a man who stunned with his intelligence or his wit, and yet when he opened his mouth, he spoke with authority. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be King. He claimed to be our Savior, who would teach men what it means to have a relationship with God, who would lead men into that relationship with God, and then who would change men so that they could live the way God wants them to live. And he did all of these miracles so that when we read his teaching, we would trust it. He walked on water, and he healed the lame and the blind and the sick. And he cast out demons so that when we read him say, blessed are they that mourn. So when we read him say, love thy neighbor as thyself. So when we read him say, everything he said, we would trust it and we would obey it. And this is why we read and we study it today. So that we might understand who Jesus is, what he did so that we might have the same faith and trust and obedience that he's called every man to have in him. And if we see Jesus as our authority, then everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus asks for, but does not yet demand your acknowledgement. In this age and at this time, Jesus has come asking for you to acknowledge his authority, but he does not yet demand it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, I alluded to it just briefly as we sprinted our way through the, the book of Luke. It's so much easier to preach a book sermon on like Jude. You know, it's practically a... I could practically preach the book sermon and then move on to the next book. But, but this one, we, we got through though. Uh, in, in Luke 9, 54 though, after being rejected by a group of Samaritans, remember I mentioned this, the disciples said this. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord... Wilt thou that we command fire to come down 
from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Should we call down fire and just have these, these scoffers, these men that didn't receive you, just devoured? Notice what Jesus, how Jesus responds to them in verses 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. The spirit you're speaking out of is not my spirit, James and John. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus didn't call down fire from heaven upon the unbelieving masses. He moved to another village. When Chorazin and Bethsaida rejected him, along with so many in Israel, they received the woe of knowing that it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. But they were not wiped off the earth in Jesus' righteous anger. The character of Jesus in his first advent and the call to all who have since heard his name is that we would choose, based upon evidence that is yielded in faith, upon the testimony of God's word confirmed through the affirmation of the Spirit of God, choose to place ourselves under the authority of Christ. Jesus is not going to twist our arm at this time to follow him. He is going to ask for you to follow him and give you every reason to follow him. But it's your choice. On the authority of Christ, those who come to him will receive the spiritual healing and joy and forgiveness which all men seek. But Jesus is asking for it, not demanding out of it. Now, there's a second advent, right? There's coming a day when Jesus will come in that power. When he will come no longer as the lamb, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. When he will come on his horse. When he will come with his sword. When he will come to, as a day of reckoning. When he will come to smite the earth. When he will come to exert righteousness and rule with a rod of iron. But that wasn't the first advent. Jesus asks for us but does not yet demand our acknowledgement. Third and finally, as we consider the broad overview of this book, to acknowledge Christ comes with privilege, but also comes with cost. Luke wrote this epistle, this gospel, to a man named Theophilus. He called him Most Excellent Theophilus. He made it clear, though, as he wrote to this man, that following Jesus Christ comes at a cost. Now, this is not the cost of purchase. We talked about this in Sunday school, right? There is no way either monetarily or through action or behavior to buy, to earn, or to otherwise deserve salvation. I cannot work my way to heaven by being good. I cannot buy my way to heaven with anything material. I cannot earn heaven for heaven is beyond any possible earning of my own. But as one decides whether or not this free gift is one which he wants, he ought to know that being a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean just walking behind him, eating the food that he multiplies for you, and the, fish, the, the, the bread and, and the fishes, and walking on water with him, healing you when you don't feel well. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means submitting yourself to his authority. It means leaving all, forsaking all, yielding all, all of your priorities, all of your perceived right, all of your perceived privileges, it means taking that which the world has promised and setting it aside for that which Christ has promised. Taking everything and placing it at God's feet to do with what He will, this is what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ means to love Him more than any and indeed more than all. 
Whether Christ asks you to follow him in life or death, you follow him because he's your Savior. Whether Christ asks you to follow him into riches or poverty, you follow him because he's your Savior. Whether Christ asks you to follow him into praise or ridicule, you follow him because he's your Savior. And this gospel will confront you with these facts. Luke will confront you with the reality that to become a follower of Jesus Christ is not just a gimme, gimme, gimme type thing. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to place yourself under the authority of one and to go his way on his terms. It will confront you and authoritatively ask you, this gospel will, if you have indeed left all to follow Christ. And this will be our goal as well. From week to week, we will learn about nearly every aspect of the Christian life. But all the while, the goal within each of us will be, as we are confronted with the authority of Jesus Christ, whether or not we have counted the cost that we might be numbered among the children of God and that we might reflect Him properly to a lost and dying world. So for us today, ours is one of preparation. Over this week, as we prepare to enter into the book of Luke, may God, through His Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ, to receive His Word with gladness, and to be willing, having received the, that authority, having heard it, to place ourselves under it as he would have us to do. Let's close in prayer. Father, as Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In those words, Jesus Christ recognized your authority. And we would echo those words this morning in our own hearts. That you are king. And we would seek to align ourselves with the direction and the principles of your kingdom. Pray that your Holy Spirit not just in these few moments, but in the week that is to come, would prepare us to learn of this authority and to align ourselves with it. As we step into a couple of exciting weeks in the next two weeks, considering the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the dead, as we consider together the very epitome of Jesus' authority. May this week and this sermon rightly position our hearts to receive it with gladness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.